Hey everybody, it's Richard Harrison, Scott Lease with another fun episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast brought to you by our October sponsors of Lead 411, Gong, and our newest sponsor, Perception Predict, which will actually have a platform that will predict the accuracy of your reps uh, hitting their goal. It'll tell you if they're going to come in at 80%, 90%, 70%, 100%. Um, so you should be, be sure to check them out because it's definitely something I know everybody's focusing on in October of 2020, particularly as we plan 2021. Um, you know, want to obviously bring in our guest who is Alex, and I hope I don't mess up the back, the last part of your name, but Alex Goldfan. Is that correct? Pretty good with no preparation, Richard. Alex Goldfan. Yeah, you got it. Goldfan. All right. So he's, a, he's actually a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, which I aspire to. I know uh, uh, Scott does. So we'll have to figure out how to do that. But he's written uh, at least one book that I know called Five Minutes Selling. I'm not sure. Have you done another one or are you working on a second one? Yeah. So the four behind me are my books on the wall. And, uh, and there, there's another book that, that's unrelated to the business book. So this would have been my fifth. Got so what are the four books? Like what is your business book background in terms of the things you like to write about? Uh, so I write on sales growth. Uh, and uh, I do all the work that's in the books with my clients. Uh, I work with organizations, uh, with sales teams and customer facing teams. My uh, typical client adds 10 to 20% new sales annually every year as long as they uh, do the work and apply the concept. So uh, the work is all about growing the sales of that? my clients. Right. So that, that's always the biggest challenge, right, is accountability, right? How do you encourage that within your clients to hold them accountable or to make them want to be accountable? So there, there's the sort of different layers of accountability, right? There's the accountability of the owner or the top executive who I work with. And then there's the accountability. So there's the accountability between me and that person. And then there's the accountability between that person and, and his or her team. Uh, so um, which one so, do you want to talk about? I want to talk about sort of driving it to the team, right? And, and I'm not sure, are you focusing at the team in, you know, the yeah. contributor level or is it management or both or how's that? Yeah, we, we go all the way down to the people on the front lines who face customers right. and um you know, there's, again, there's layers of accountability. So there's, there's a full communications loop, literally to the point where the sales manager asks for a certain number of specific actions every week. It's an assignment. They make an assignment to the team. The team right. goes and does them. The team tracks them, writes them down. The team turns them back in to, uh, to, to the manager that they work for. And then we do scorecards. Uh, and then we do recognition, formal recognition where we talk about who did what and the great results that it generated. So there is a, a constant loop of here's what we're going to do. We're always talking about it. They go and do it, they track it, and then they turn it back in. Yeah. So what, so talk about recognition, because I know it's important, right? Uh, we talk about it as it's probably one of the, the most important things of, you know, adopting change. Is it, are you seeing, and what are you seeing sort of, industry-wide like is it still you know cash is king recognition uh is it hey just to be recognized which we also know is really important for people in particularly and i'm asking in the context of you know the covid world right where so much has changed in the sales world in terms of headcount and motivation and goals like anything different that you're seeing around that side so the science tells us that recognition is a more powerful uh, motivator of new behavior than money is, right? So uh, let's say 
uh, Melissa uh, does uh, a proactive phone call and asks a did you know question and then pivots to the sale uh, and adds some business, uh, which, which, uh, which are all things in the books and all things that my clients do. Uh, systematically. And then uh, you call Melissa into the conference room and you give her $250. Uh, and that's quiet. That stays contained. Melissa's happy, but nobody knows about it. Uh, and then the next time Melissa does what she's supposed to do, and you don't give her $250, she's unlearning that behavior versus recognition. Let's say there's 50 people on Melissa's team or even 10. She gets recognized publicly, right? It's in a document that goes out regularly. She's proud. She's happy. Maybe there's another person or two being recognized with her. They're also proud. They're also happy. So they feel good. How do the other seven people feel who aren't on the list, right? They want to be next. They aspire to get to the list. So recognition teaches the behavior we want people to make. And it also motivates the people that aren't being recognized to get there. So it's, it's, it's far uh, more powerful in terms of uh, pushing forth the kinds of behaviors you want happening at your organization. But what if that person doesn't get recognized the second time? Isn't then that the same problem as you had with the financial one? Well, we literally have people coming to us with these, uh, with these recognition documents saying, uh, I did these things, but I didn't make the list, right? What happened? How come I made it last week and not this week? And then the answer is, I'm sorry, uh, do it again and I'll do my best to get you on next week, right? So it's a constant uh, desire, I think. And we humans want to be recognized, right? The psychology is such that we do the work we want to be recognized for it. Um, so it, this goes back to behavioral psychology where uh, I don't know if uh, I studied psychology in school. So I don't know if you remember like the rats pushing the lever and then the, and then the pellet of food comes out, right? Yeah. Positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, intermittent reinforcement, random reinforcement. So, uh, what we want is, uh, is, is to teach uh, the behaviors to the group by recognizing the right ones and then sharing the results aggressively. Uh, just as we've talked, I had a client just now, a client's um, recognition uh, for their group came into my email because I get copied on them and everybody gets to see it. So you, you want to make sure that if the people are doing the work, they get some recognition for it. Can you recognize everybody every time? Not necessarily, but it doesn't matter that much. Uh, it's better if it's, it's, it works better if it's intermittent. I was going to say, is it strategic then to not recognize the same people over and over again? No, um, we don't think that hard about it. We just want uh, good, uh, uh, effective, successful uh, behaviors to, to, to be communicated out to the wider group. Got it. You, you started as, you started your career, it looks like, uh, as, a, as a columnist as a, in journalism. Pretty good I mean, preparation, Scott. That's I mean, impressive. You, yeah, well, sometimes it doesn't take that much to have a uh, conversation with, with people who know certain things or those who don't. Yeah. Great. How did you go from uh, being a journalist, a journalist to uh, getting into tech? I'm trying to figure out where your practitioner experience is. Um, as, sure. As well, so I've, uh, I've been in business my whole life. I've never had a job. I've never had a paycheck. I've never had a boss. Um, and sometimes that would be nice, like, you know, some of these COVID months that we've had. Uh, but yeah, about, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, I was a columnist uh, for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, I was a syndicated columnist uh, and I covered technology. I was a radio show host as well. Uh, and 
uh, the tech companies at the time were pitching me uh, to cover their stuff, right? If you're a journalist, you get pitched by the PR folks. And their pitches were awful. They were just horrendous. You know, the marketing, the PR, I mean, they were succeeding in spite of their marketing and in spite of their PR. And uh, so I started to help them. I was a syndicated column. I ran 300 different publications. So I was hearing from everybody. Uh, you know, I wasn't Mossberg, but it, it got a lot of readers. Um, and so I started to help them. And, uh, and they started listening. Uh, and it started working. Uh, and then my wife said, you know, you could get paid for this. Uh, and uh, I said, huh, let, let's, let me go try that. And she was right, as usual. Uh, she's, she's always right. Uh, and uh, and that, so, so I started working with them. And, uh, you know, it was, it was Logitech, Lenovo, TiVo at the time. Uh, and I was covering technology at the height of the, of, of like the golden era, right? It was, uh, it was when flat panels first came out, right? It was when the first iPhone came out. Uh, it was when the Palm Pilot and the Handspring Trio. So it was, uh, it, it was you know, when, when personal devices got big. Anyway, uh, I wrote that book, uh, Evangelist Marketing. And that book is about how do you market consumer electronics, which at the time was my audience, right? So I went from writing in the trib on technology to, to a book for these people, for the companies that I covered. As soon as that book came out, Scott, non-tech companies started calling me. Right, because it was a book for tech companies. I think the subtitle has Apple, Amazon, and Netflix on the cover there. Um, so it was specifically for tech companies. As soon as that book came out, non-tech companies started calling me because I was working pretty deeply with those folks already, with the tech folks. And I realized I liked it a lot better, you know? Um, and, and, and the work uh, it was more interesting. Uh, they were, um, uh, it, it, they were um, more enjoyable to help these family businesses, I work with a lot of multi-generational family companies, you know, manufacturers, distributors, service companies. They've been around for 50 years, 75 years, 100 years. They make really sexy things like pipes and valves, um, like lumber, uh, like uh, carton. Uh, but it makes the world go around. You know, these boring things make the world you go feel, around. You feel like you make more of an impact personally with family businesses like that and, that, and therefore that means something to you? I feel like um, I feel like they're fighting for their staff, for their employees. I feel like they 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 really work really hard to take care of their customers. And frankly, in the consumer electronics space, uh, and and you know, in those Silicon Valley companies, the way to to progress your career is to change jobs, right? Um, you you climb the ladder by changing jobs. And so I'd have a client for a couple of years, and then they were gone. Now they would bring me, right? But you couldn't see it through. Here, with what I do now, I get to see it through. What were, what were some examples, and you don't have to name the company, but, and, and I'm asking in the context of, of new companies, whether it's, and, and it doesn't have to be tech, um, what's, a, what's an example of a bad pitch? What are they focusing on in a bad pitch versus what a good pitch is? And that might have even changed in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years since you first started experiencing that. Yeah, well, and we could... Um, so I'm, I'll answer your question and we could, um, you know, certainly take that conversation a step further to how do we sell now in a pandemic, right? How do we, Let's how do, do we that. grow sales now in, in this environment where we can't be face to face with people, where we can't interact with people, but I'm happy to answer. And I'll give you a public uh, example. If you'd like, do you want me to answer that question? Sure. I'll go either yeah. way you want. Yeah. Let's answer that question. Then we'll move to the pandemic question. I think it's, a yeah. Great so, 
I mean, I'll give you a public example, a bad pitch for consumer electronics. Do you remember, and I think we're all old enough to remember this, uh, in the backs of magazines, because magazines were big, because the internet wasn't nearly as big back then, right? So we all read magazines. And on the back of the magazine was uh, a Dell ad almost always, right? No matter what you read, there was a Dell ad. And the Dell, it was desktop computers. And so there was a tower and a monitor and a keyboard. And the entire page was little tiny squares of computers. And next to, and then a price. And next to each computer was the megahertz, megabytes, megapixels. So it was all about the stuff and it was all about the technology. And um, I was interested, my, my advice to these people was, why don't you talk about how it helps people, right? Let's market what people can do with this product as opposed to the specs and the, and the tech details. Um, you know, and Scott, just like you work with uh, startups, um, many times because the startup tends to be run by the person who created the product, right? That's running it. They're focused like crazy on the product, right? Because yeah. that's they developed the product. And so the entire conversation consists of uh, what it does, how it's built, how fast it is, right? Um, and again, you know, megahertz, megabytes, megapixels, whatever it is. And what they need to be talking about is what people can do with it, right? How does it help people? How do real people like me? So if I'm a prospective customer for your startup's product, how does it help other people like me? What do they do with it, right? How does it help their family? How does it help their work? Does it save them time? Does it help them make money? Does it help them cut costs? What does it help them do? And how is it used by other people like me? That's what I'm interested in. How do you, so let's, let's translate that into today's world, right? Yeah. Point of, of understanding what, what it means in the COVID world. Cause I talk about this too. Like don't, nobody cares what you do. They only care what pain you solve. Right. Um, what are you seeing in the sales world right now that's, I don't, you know, call it working or not working? Um, what are your experiences? I think that uh, the very simple answer to your question is the people who use the phone are, are severely outperforming the people who don't. Um, I think it all boils down to being present uh, and uh, uh, communicating to your customers that you care. I don't think it's a matter of caring more. I think it's a matter of communicating that you care, right? I think people care more than enough, but they're quiet uh, because they're afraid. Uh, but do fear, you, be, you know, do you, do you think they, when you say care, right? Because I'm sort of tired of hearing, hey, I hope you're doing, you know, well in these, you know, unprecedented times. Like that's sort of been beaten to death, right? I understand the empathy behind it. And I understand it could be, you know, people are trying to lead from the heart, as they say. But, you know, how do you do that better than you did in April and May? Yeah. Well, l let me, can you guys remember? So first of all, I guess my question is, can you reach your phone right now as you sit there? Can you reach sure. it? Is, it? is it by you? Yeah. Richard, yeah? Okay. So we're all sitting by the phone, right? I was doing a, 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 a I got talked into doing a, a session for a CEO group and they all brought their staff. So there were 250 people. Uh, this was Friday, uh, and uh, we're talking Monday, this was Friday. And uh, I put it into gallery mode, and I told everybody to put it into gallery mode. And I said, if you can, first, first story of the session, it was, it was a long session too, it was hours long, uh, but it worked, it worked really well. Uh, they set it up nicely. Anyway, I said, if you can reach your phone, hold it up to the camera. And so we had, we put it in gallery mode and we could see everybody's you know, little square. And we had 250 people, every single person held up their phone to the camera. And uh, the point of that is we're all sitting by the phone. 
All of us. All of us. No, we're not in meetings, right? We're not driving anywhere. Uh, most of us. We're not flying. Uh, we're all sitting at our desks by our phone. And uh, when's the last time you guys got a call? And I heard you say you're tired of, of, of a certain kind of call. And I hear that. But let me ask you, when's the last time you got a call uh, from somebody selling to you when they weren't pitching you, when nothing was wrong, uh, and they called you and they said, Richard, how are you? It's Alex. I was thinking about you. How you doing? How's your family? And when you cover that, you go to, what are you working on these days that I might be able to help you with? Yeah, but that, that implies some level of familiarity. Yeah. Yeah. We all know hundreds of people. Right. Let's call but the not, people we know. I'm talking from a sales perspective, right? Like that I, is selling. That is a sales perspective. Let's but call not if people I don't have we a know. Relationship with that person, not if I've never spoken to you. Well, but look, every salesperson knows hundreds of people. At least we know the name of, of them and they know the name of us. Sure. Um, these can be customers. These can be prospects. Um, these can be past customers, right? Uh, but all of us at a minimum, even if I'm new to, the, to, to, to whatever company that I, I might be working for, even if I'm new to the business, we all can go to hundreds of people who would uh, recognize the company's name, at least. At least they know the company's name. And then by definition, because we're all living in the pandemic and we all have so much in common, there are no cold calls right are now. You, well, that I agree with. I mean, that, nobody's been cold calling for years. It's a generational issue as much as anything. Um, and it's also a generational because to your point, we all hated it and we never had anybody teach us, right? We, we know more about cold calling now than we ever did. But again, I get it on a prospect, on a customer side. I get it on a, someone I'm in a sales cycle with, right? I get it. That makes total sense. Um, but on a prospecting side, you, you know, are you seeing that work? You're saying if you don't know the person at all. Yeah. If I'm cold, they don't know your company. Sales, I got a cold call. Right. And I do have phone number, you know, and that's the other issue. Do I even have the phone number anymore? Right. Are they having their calls forwarded? Are they, you know, taking phone calls? Do you have a cell phone? But whatever reason, you've got a phone number, you've never spoken to someone before. Am I really picking up the phone and saying, hey, Alex, you know, you don't know me, but how you doing, man? How's your family? Well, I wouldn't do it that way. So how um, would you do it? That's what I want to know. What's so, working? So, so again, I'll answer your question. Um, I don't think cold calling is a very good and easy way for salespeople to live. Uh, I acknowledge that some people have to cold call. Uh, I get it. And as I said, we all have an awful lot of people we can call, not cold, warm. What's, so Alex, answer the question. What's working in a cold calling perspective? You, you've thrown it out there that we need to be more personal. I'm not calling bullshit, but I just want to give people a real world example of what works. So if you must cold call, the script is as follows. Richard, it's Alex Goldfin. I work with the Revenue Growth Consultancy. My clients had 10 to 20% annually. Uh, I have a client here that reminded me of you. Now, they're doing great with some of our approaches. Uh, I think they would work really well with you because I've researched who you are in your company and I've actually heard a good bit about you. Uh, I'd love to tell you what they're doing. I think it'll work great for you. If you have a couple minutes, let me tell you now. If not, let's schedule something and we can catch up about it later in the week. What's better for you? That's how I would do it. I would peg it to a client, I would name the client and hope you would recognize it, recognize that person. 
And I would try to tell you, I think there's something working here that I think would work for you. Yeah, I like, And that I like works that. for my clients all I day would, long. I would flip it a little bit. I would say, hey, Alex, I've heard about you and what you do. And I was thinking about you because of this other person. Like I would often try to make it about them first versus, hi, this is Richard, you know, calling from the Harris Consulting Group. Because as soon as I say that, they know it's a sales call. So, but if your data suggests that it works that way, I, I'll follow the numbers anytime. Now, do you, you, you mentioned name dropping current customers of yours. <clears throat> How do you go about getting their permission for that? Or do you bother? Is there like some, some sign off process? Hey, is it cool if I use your name? Is this a testimonial or a case study that you have like, already up on your website somewhere? Um, I, I asked the question because there's a lot of people early in their career who I think throw around names of, of clients and things like that um, without getting permission. And that comes back to bite them. So how, how do you go about making sure that everything is, you know, above the board, so to speak? So generally, if you're talking one-on-one -on -one with somebody, right, you're having a private conversation. It's not public. You're not blasting it out. On, on your website or in LinkedIn um, shouldn't be an issue. If you think they would recognize the client, I would say the client. Uh, no, look, I only work with about 12 to 18 clients a year. That's it. That's all I have space for because I work by myself. I run a $3 million consulting practice and I work solo. I have a half-time assistant. Um, and so for me, it's no big deal. If it's in the industry, I name the client, right? It, it's helpful. Um, I've never had an issue where somebody gets mad about a private conversation when you name another customer. I would just name them. If they don't know the client, I would describe the client. You know, if I'm calling on a distributor, I have a distributor. If I'm calling on a startup, I would say, look, I've got somebody who's a year or two ahead of you um, in, in a similar kind of business. And, and they're doing some things that I think would work really well for you. Uh, and so I've, I've laid out a couple of them here and I'd love to share that with you. And if you're interested in being helped, you're going to talk to me. If you're not interested in improving or being helped, then you won't talk to me. But then you get a choice. It's up to you. I wonder if there's nuance there or context in a difference between selling <clears throat> consulting services versus working for, um, you know, a SaaS company or something like that. Because I have seen and heard sellers name drop a client to a prospect. That prospect then reaches, does some research and reaches out to this name dropped customer. And then the customer's like, Hey, did you give my name to so-and-so? Um, I wonder if that is different if you're working for yourself versus working for a company. Or not. Yeah. I mean, I would use your judgment. You know, most people have a good sense. If you feel like somebody's going to get upset, don't use them. Uh, if you feel like you, you've got a trusting relationship with a client or a customer, uh, and you, and you know, you've helped them and they've helped you shouldn't be an issue. You now, know, somebody... Go ahead. I want, I want to, I want to focus on something I just heard you talk about and, um, I'm going to ask it because most people kind of keep this topic taboo, which I've never liked. And by the fact that you spoke about it, I'm going to assume that you don't think it's taboo. So you you just said that you have a $3 million consulting practice and you work all by yourself. How does one scale their consulting practice to the point where they can basically work for themselves? Never mind your halftime assistant. No disrespect to whoever that is, but like you're by yourself, all right? 
that's a lot of work. That's big revenue for just one person. How do you set yourself up in a consulting business or advisory business or this kind of gig economy type thing? Because there's a lot of people out there who would love to be doing what you're doing. I would be one of them. How do you get to run $3 million through your business when it's just you? So overnight success, 20 years in the making, right? I told you I've been in business my entire life. Uh, in that time, we've been out of money multiple times. Um, in that time, my wife would open up Target cards or, or other credit cards. Remember there was a time you'd go to the cash out, you go to the cash register and they would offer you a credit card every time. Do you remember this? All the time. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we would, she would get credit cards to buy food just in case, in case we needed food, she would open up the credit cards. So the last, each of the last two years, my business was at $3 million. Uh, so 2019, 2018, the year before, uh, it was a little smaller, the year before it was a little smaller, but it's, it takes many years. Um, I also think I'm not, I'm not at the top yet. I think that, uh, I think I can push the gas and get to $5 million. Um, so, you know, I mean, you, you ask a gigantic question. Uh, you need to sell uh, projects that are incredibly uh, perceived incredibly valuably to your clients. Uh, you need to be seen, I think, probably as a singular expert on your subject matter. Because uh, you asked me, how do you build a consulting business, right? How do you build uh, a consulting business? Less about that and more so about... I'm focusing there. Yeah, Where do you want I, think, me to go? I, mean, I think anybody, maybe not anybody, but I think many people right now can build a consulting business that pays them $100,000 a year. That's a totally different thing than having a consulting business doing a million dollars a year, okay? I wanna know, how do you have a million, how do you take your million dollar consulting business and turn it into a $3 million or a $5 million business? That, maybe I can focus the question more for you, but that's the part that I'm keen to learn more about. I think the simplest answer, Scott, is to raise fees. Raise your feet. Yeah, no, that it, you might be right, 100%. I liked your response before about finding um, clients or gigs where the perceived value is really, really high, you know, and maybe raising fees is as simple as that. Because you've got to, if you're working by yourself, like you can't scale yourself. So if you can't scale yourself, you just charge more for your time. Um. I don't think you should charge for your time. I think you should charge for your project. Uh, I think if you charge hourly, you'll never get to the levels you want to get to. It can't be hourly. Yeah, I, I, think, agree. I agree with that. I think most people don't. I, totally agree. I think most people don't charge enough for their services. Period. Um, I would say probably ninety-five percent of people don't charge enough for their services. Uh, once you get into working with some social media folks, it's shocking how low the prices are. Right? It's stunning how low the prices are. Um, I think that comes from fear. Uh, I think fear drives salespeople's behavior. Uh, I think if you're not bold and if you don't believe in your value completely and utterly, you can't do this work, right? You can run a hundred thousand dollar business. Uh, but I don't think you'll get to a million dollars with fear. Uh, certainly as, as fear drives your behavior. So a lot of my work actually, ironically, given your question, focuses with salespeople on fear. How do you overcome it? What do you do about it? Because our behavior follows our mindset, right? Uh, we, we can't outsell our mindset. 
we, we, if, if we believe we're bothering the customer, right, Richard, as you, you sort of set up some of your questions to me as, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to call them and ask about their family if I don't know them. If we believe we're annoying them, if we believe we're uh, stepping on their toes and taking their time, we're going to behave accordingly. We're not going to do that. We're not going to make those calls. If we believe we have immense value, uh, we, we can help these people. If we believe that I'm not lucky that they picked up the phone when I called, but rather how lucky are they that I picked them to call? Because I could be talking to a thousand different people right now. I'm talking to them, right? Um, if that's the belief, then we won't hesitate to pick up the phone. Then we will uh, try to bring our value to as many people as we can. Um, and so I think, you know, practically, Scott, I think the answer to your question is fees. I think bigger picture though, and more bigger, uh, meaning um, more importantly, I think the answer is mindset. Yeah. I think mindset is the answer. I think we have to be um, positive, optimistic, uh, confident, grateful, uh, because you can't find those things in most places that you look. And, and you sure as heck can't find them now, right? If you, if you look at the news today, <laughs> yeah. right? You sure as heck aren't going to find optimism and gratitude and positivity and confidence today. And for the last year, and really ever, it's, and I mean, really, that's what I sell. That's what I bring my clients. I bring them optimism and positivity. Were you always that way? Because again, you know, and I mean like way before you were an author and a consultant. Hell no. Even before you were a journalist. No, no because it's unnatural. So, so what, what was the piece that flipped it for you? Like what, when did you just say, I'm tired of thinking this way? When did you think we're old enough to know, you know, when did you have your Costanza moment to do everything opposite? Of, there isn't. You know, there, there isn't a moment there is only an amassing of, of experiences and learnings until, until it flips, until the scale tips, you know, from here to here. There isn't a moment. There is only um, sort of marinating in it until, until it clicks. And, and the click, unless, unless you bring in exactly the perfect training for the moment, for the time, you know, which is difficult to do the perfect training from the perfect trainer with the perfect system and the process to get it to click for you immediately today. Um, the, the click takes years, years. You know, I failed, I mean, tens of thousands of failures that, you know, just countless freaking failures. Um, and look in, in, in baseball, you go to the hall of fame if you fail 70% of the time, right? In baseball. In sales, we fail more than that. In sales, if you succeed 10% of the time, 15% of the time, you're among the best, man. You're as good as it gets, 10 to 15% win rate. That means nine out of 10 attempts, you are being told no. Nine out of 10, you're being told no. And if it's only nine out of 10, you're excellent at your job. So we have to walk through the nose. The fear comes from not wanting to get rejected. We don't want any more nose. We get nose all day long. I don't want to go to more nose, right? So we have to walk through that. And, and it, 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 it tips. It's, it's figuring out that without the nose, 
you can't get to the yeses. If you're not so, hearing no, you can't get to the yes. So it's interesting because it, for me that I've, I've defined that as a little bit of the finesse, right? The maturing through the process. I'm curious, um, do you feel like you learned a lot of that more in the journalism phase of your career? No. Um, or was it a little bit easier in journalism because those people were pitching you all the time? There was a time that I tried to consult while writing. Remember my wife said, you can make some money at this. And she was right. And so I started helping those companies. And I, I still tried because I was writing on a, on a contract basis. I wasn't a full-time employee. I was writing a weekly column. And there was a time I tried to do both. And I found it. For, for, and I was, I was in my 20s when this was happening, right? So I, I didn't have the experience. But I think even now I would feel the same way. I found it... Um, physically impossible from a mindset perspective to do both. I found you cannot have a mindset for journalism and a mindset for business success at the same time. They're opposites, opposites. Um, so, so it didn't come, it didn't come from journalism. It came from um, the lessons of business. You know, it came from, uh, perseverance and um, pain and and suffering, you know, uh, and then figuring it out and staying have, in it long enough to figure it out. Do you have Do you have part of your mindset now where you are motivated to kind of keep going because you know what it's been like to um, have your business kind of disappear? You said that you gone down to nothing in the bank account before once or twice done really well the last few years. I, I wonder how much uh, fuel there is to keep you going because you're like, shit, I never want to go back to this particular place. Or do you just kind of accept that that might happen? Um, and there's not too much you can do about it. Um, I think uh, so. So I have this, um, I don't know, this drive, this ambition in me. And, uh, and it's an immigrant ambition. I was born in the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and in 1978, my, my dad uh, and, uh, dragged the whole family out. Uh, so I was two years old. And, uh, you know, and I watched, he, when, when we came to this country, he was in his 20s. He had no English language. We had $20 US, 20 bucks is all we had. Um, and so my, my entire childhood only child immigrant only child right difficult combination no pressure no pressure at all uh right like when i would stop doing something it was why did we come to this country <laughs> for you to stop that's why we came um so my entire childhood i watched my dad um persevere like crazy right to go from washing dishes at a restaurant because he was a trained engineer in in, in russia in the soviet union and when he came here he had to wash dishes at a restaurant uh, and, and he still doesn't like me telling that story, even though he retired two years ago as, uh, as the head of engineering for Baxter Pharmaceutical in their IV lab. Um, he still doesn't like me telling people that he used to wash dishes at a restaurant, right? Like 40 years ago. Uh, so, so I watched that my entire life growing up. Uh, and, 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 you know, I saw it and it's in me. Um, and uh, further, you know, I, I think... I think being, you know, on, on one hand, being out of money still drives me for sure, Scott, to answer your question directly. 
I think on the other hand, I can't run out of money anymore because there's a lot of money in the bank now. Um, right. So, so when I think about it practically, you know, it's not, if it ever happens again, God forbid, it's not going to be like last time because there was no money in the bank, right? There was nothing. And now there is. Um, so there's that. And, you know, as I think about it, I think money in the bank and a, and a history, a, a proof of success, right? An active proof of success, meaning the ability to look back and say, um, you know, number one, I did it before and here's how, and I could do it again. Number two is, uh, is, you know, proof of success of look at all I've been through and, and I've gotten here today. And then I'm talking to our, to our viewers now, to our listeners, um, look at all I've came through and look at where I am. And I could sure as hell go to the next thing that I'm trying to do. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I think that that fear still is in us, you know, and I think you're, your story speaks to a lot of people, um, whether whether it's immigrant or going from job status to job status. I've, I've had that challenge too, um, where it's kind of like, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> like, and I only have, you know, for me, it's like, well, I just got to get back on the horse and go through this process and find the next job and, you know, know that I'm, you know, after a couple of times to your point, all right, I got this process down. I know how to do this. I can, I can get to that next phase if that's what I really, really want. So yeah. uh, I, the, I, the fear is the dominant mindset. Yeah. Fear is the feeling that overwhelms all other thoughts and feelings. It, it owns us. It drives us. Look, I still deal with it. You know, I write books about it, but I still deal with it. What are you fearful now? Right? Like, so, you know, you're successful. You got good money in the bank, right? You got your best-selling author, now what what fear motivates you now um it's the same fears you know it's the fear that it can all end tomorrow uh it's the same fears it's it's completely irrational right it's utter bullshit uh but it still tries to drive my behavior even though i'm aware of it and i know it and i know what to do about it and i know exactly how to deal with it and i've written freaking books on it uh so i still deal with it every day so how do you how do you try to help coach someone earlier in their sales career or later in their sales career to work through their own fears. Because I think that's, you know, ultimately that's, you know, the line manager, the line leaders, that's probably one of their biggest challenges is, you know, a lot of people, you know, people call it motivation, but how do you coach them through the fear to get to the motivation? Well, I think, well, that's, we, we could talk for hours about the, that question, but I, I think that, um, I think if you ask a customer about a salesperson or about a salesperson's company or about a salesperson's product or service, usually the customer speaks more positively about us than we speak about ourselves, right? Because they're experiencing the end result. And so uh, the message begins with uh, people need your immense value and they're very happy with your value and they know how good you are. And now we're asking you to know how good you are. Uh, and when I work with my clients, in the project, what we do is we go and talk to their happy customers and we get testimonials from them and we show them how good they are. And it's the paying customer saying how good you are. And so the way to deal with the fear is to understand your great value uh, and then to behave accordingly. And then uh, practically though, if you're not gonna go to customers, the way to deal with the fear is to have a good phone call. The first call, the first positive, warm, relationship building, confidence building phone call is going to be the thing that gets you out of the vicious circle 
which is avoiding the phone, feeling afraid, um, not wanting to be annoying, feeling down, feeling anxious, avoiding the phone some more. That's your vicious circle. Over here, you have your success circle. You have a good call with a customer or a prospect, right? Uh, you build your confidence. You build your positivity. You have another phone call. It gives you more energy for the next call. And on and on we go. This is the success circle where you make call after call, build relationship after relationship, and make sales. This is your vicious circle. The way out from this one into this one is the phone, is the first call. The first call will move you from the, where you are and where your fear keeps you in this circle to the successful circle. The first positive interaction. I hope everybody listening to this at home is, uh, is picking up on Alex's core message, which is pick up the phone and make phone calls. Because there's been plenty of people that I've come across recently who are not using the phone very much, if not at all. And uh, I think that's a big mistake. So it's, it's good to talk to somebody who's still espousing the validity of the phone and, uh, and picking it up. So Alex, we've got to start wrap, wrapping up here a little bit. We usually end every show by saying, how can we be helpful to you? Is there some passion project or something you're working on right now that you want to spend a moment shouting out? Uh, to kind of turn it over to you for a second. Um, I don't know so much about passion project. I think that um, I think my, my passion project is getting people to take some action. And that's what I do for clients. And that's what I do in my webinars uh, with people. And, you know, knowing doesn't make us any money. Doing makes the money. Doing makes the money. Knowing doesn't make money. And so now you've heard some things and you now, you know, you've spent 45 minutes with us and you know some things. Uh, which you probably knew already, right? They're not new to you. You probably knew these things already. Um, then the question is, what are you going to do? What will you do? What will you do to feed your family? What will you do to grow your sales? What will you do to help your customers? Um, we suggest, Scott, as your question started with, to pick up the phone. If you don't know exactly how to do it, read my stuff. Watch my videos. If you feel like it, spend 20 bucks on my newest book, Five Minute Selling, um, which I have here. By the way, Five Minute Selling hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list in the first week. Um, that it was out. It's, that. Like, how do you do that? But that, you know, that's only, okay. and it's only been out for about a month. Uh, so in week one, it hit the wall street journal list. A lot of people have to buy it, Richard. That's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a formula to it. I've heard. So, but we'll save that for another conversation. Um, Alex, this has been really fun and, and, and unique. So thank you so much for, for sharing and letting us push you on some ideas too. So I appreciate Thanks it. for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Um, and obviously, as always, a shout out to um, our sponsors of Perception Predict and Gong and Lead411. But Alex, thanks again. And I, one last question for you, because you're in Chicago. Cubs or White Sox? Doesn't matter this year, man. It's been a, <laughs> it's been a shit show uh, for both of them. Uh, Cubs. Cubs over Sox. Uh, very yeah. happy when the Sox won. Um, yeah. But but for sure, lifelong Cubs fan, diehard Cubs fan. Yeah, so I, I, my uncle's a diehard Cubs fan, and he gives me that, you know, batting. The bat I walk around my office with when I'm having phone calls, which nobody does anymore, and it's my Wrigley Field Cubs bat, and I walk around with it, and I've got my headphones on, and I, and this is what I, this is what I'm, what I have when I talk. I love phone. that. I love that. That's great. <laughs> All right, Alex. Thanks, man. We really appreciate. Thanks, guys. It. Enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye.